KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. If you're from Philadelphia, you probably associate the Schuylkill River with some things that aren't so great, like the expressway that runs alongside it and is notorious for awful traffic, or its greenish color that just doesn't seem right for such a significant tributary. But the functional stakes of the Schuylkill River and how the Schuylkill watershed behave are high. A research team wanted to find out more. There's certainly lots of municipalities that take water out of the river, and there are also discharges back in. We tried to look at how how reliable we are in meeting our needs. Dr. Amira Olson is an associate professor of civil, architectural, and environmental engineering at Drexel University. She was one of the lead researchers for the Schuylkill study. For now, she says the river can support the region's needs, but long term? I think we're going to have to get a little creative in how we store water, how we use water, how we're efficient with our water use. I'm Matt Leon, and this is KYW News Radio in depth, sponsored by your Delaware Valley Honda dealers. Get a deal you'll like on a Honda you'll love. Today, what can we do about this? How can we get out in front of some troubling trends and make sure the Schuylkill River watershed continues to serve a vital purpose in the Philadelphia area and beyond? I want to start with a basic Schuylkill watershed. What makes it up? What is it? Yeah, so the Schuylkill Watershed describes the land that contributes to the Schuylkill River. So starting all the way up past Pottsville, the headwaters of the Schuylkill River, and then um, going down through Redding and Pottstown, Norristown, Philadelphia, all the way to where it hits the Delaware River. All the land that contributes, if it, it rains on that land, that contributes to the Schuylkill River is called the Schuylkill River Watershed. And of course, then once we connect into the Delaware, you certainly have you, you have New York water system in New Jersey, and then it goes down to Delaware. So we're definitely part of a larger basin there. That's the Delaware River Basin. And there is a Delaware River Basin com- Commission that looks at managing that water across different states. And talk about the research you did, what you were looking into with regards to the Schuylkill watershed here. So we started with a study of the Schuylkill River Basin, so the entire watershed, and we were looking at freshwater resources within that basin. So if you think about what contributes water, it's generally precipitation. So we have our freshwater sources that are surface water, so that's what's in the the Schuylkill River and the creeks and tributaries contributing to it, and then also some of the water that's stored in the ground, the groundwater. Our study looked at essentially a a mass balance or a water balance of the Schuylkill River Basin. And so we wanted to look at the inputs, what's providing fresh water, and then how we're using it. So we use water in the Schuylkill River for a lot of different purposes. It provides drinking water for not only Philadelphia, but for all the municipalities upstream, power generation, recreation, transportation, irrigation. So essentially, we wanted to look at all of the inputs, all of the sources of water, and then all of the ways that we use it, all the demands on the water. So if you look at water sustainability at the basic level, you want to make sure that you have your your supply of water is at least as great as your demand. So to be sustainable, you want more water than you need to use in any given day or year. And so we were looking at that reliability over a series of years. So we looked at the amount of rain that we receive and how that contributes to the the water resources that we have, and then all the ways that we use it. So there's certainly lots of municipalities that take water out of the river, and there are also discharges back in. So we looked at a mass balance of that, a water balance, and we figured we, we tried to look at how reliable we are in meeting our needs. And what did you find? Like, where are we right now? 
right now we're generally pretty good. So we have a bunch of rules in place to manage that water. So we have a number of reservoirs on the river. And so we can control when we release water and when we hold it back. And so right now we we are able to meet our objectives, so meeting the demands that we have for water, and then also just keeping a minimum level of flow through the Schuylkill River. We never want to run it dry because there are lots of things that live in the river as well. So we're generally able to meet our stream flow objectives nearly 90% of the time. So what's happened in that other 10% right now? Like, to me, the first thing I would think of, are there certain towns that are turning their taps on and nothing's coming out? Like, what, what is happening in that other 10% and what does it look like? Yeah, so there are steps that we can take to make sure that everyone still has the water that we need. So, yes, we might sometimes put on restrictions. We can remember back in history when there have been extended droughts where we've had limitations on the amount of water. Stop watering your lawns, limit your showers, things like that. But we're also able to manage some of the water that we store. So if you think about the reservoir, the whole watershed is a bit of a storage mechanism. So you see the water that we have in the river. That's available to us. But there's water stored in lots of different places. There's water stored in the ground. There's water stored in reservoirs. And so we can operate those reservoirs in a way that makes sure that we have water flowing down. So when we hit low flow conditions for several days in a row, we are able to make decisions on if we should release more water from um, the reservoirs, if we should limit water that's taken out for different industries, if we should even pipe water in from the Delaware to the Schuylkill. So we have management policies in place. And so the study that we we performed looked at all of those management policies. We built a giant model of the water allocation and the water resources, and those were included. So ways that we have to manage to make sure that we're able to meet our demands. Looking ahead as we deal with climate changes, we deal with, you know, hotter summers, even milder winters, it looks like the news is not so good over the next couple of decades. What did you find projections going down the road? Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty as we look into the future. So the historical record of precipitation, we've designed all of our water infrastructure around that. We have decades, hundreds of years of records of precipitation and temperature. And that's how we built our our water infrastructure. So the reservoirs that we have that control the water that we store and release, they're based on decades of data that followed a, a particular trend. Now, as we look to projections in the future, that, that trend is changing and it's changing much more quickly than we've ever seen in the past. So there is a great deal of uncertainty. So when we projected out to the next you know, 30, 40 years and we started to look at what happens with potential land use changes and what happens with potential climate change and precipitation patterns. We are more vulnerable to water shortages. It's interesting because a lot of the, the models predict wetter years, but if you see more precipitation, it's not necessarily evenly distributed across the year. So unfortunately, what we see projected are greater extreme events high-intensity rainfalls during rainy and wet seasons, and then more prolonged warm periods where we get little rain. So it's not distributed in a way that's easy to manage and store. If things get worse, Mm -hmm. what's kind of the next step? What are we talking about? If things get really dry and, you know, we kind of go to levels we haven't seen before, what would kind of be... Are we talking about things where water is only available certain hours, or am I getting too dystopian there? 
I think we can step away from that, that particular <laughs> dystopia, thankfully. Um, but I think we're going to have to get a little creative in how we store water, how we use water, how we're efficient with our water use. And yes, I think there's going to have to be significant investment in, in infrastructure that we use to manage water and store water. And that's going to have to happen locally. It's going to have to happen at the city level. There's going to be you know lots of opportunity for that. But I think it's also just an awareness of how water moves through a watershed and what we can do to slow it down and to, to keep it. So it's, it's interesting to think about how water is stored within a watershed. So obviously the water is moving most quickly through our rivers and streams. It's, it's flowing out and it's hard to access that. But water is, is also stored um, underground. It's stored in the soil itself. And so there are lots of things that we can do to increase that storage in the short term so that the water is more available for us so it doesn't move as quickly through the, the watershed. So there are things that we can do to slow down the precipitation. So if you think about rain events, if we get two inches of rain falling in 24 hours in a day, it's going to very quickly move through our watershed. And particularly if it's over land cover, that's highly impervious. It's just going to run right off. But if you get that same rain and it's spread out over several days and you can store some of it in the soil and you can store some of that in retention basins and green infrastructure, then we have it within our watershed, within our system for longer. So it's available to us for longer. So we can get creative in how we store and and manage water. Are these things, these creative ideas, these different ideas, are we talking significant investment is needed or is it more just kind of the will to do it? Like the tools are kind of already there. It's just a matter of making it a priority or is this going to cost a lot for municipalities, states, stuff like that? I'd say both. <laughs> I'd say the tools are there. It's We have a lot of strategies that we can use, but we do have to implement them. And we have to, to be strategic and be efficient about how we, part, how we couple them and where we invest so that there's you know, equitable distributions and where you get the, the water storage and the management. But for the most part, I feel like the technical tools we, we do have at our disposal. If we go over the next 20 years and we do see a significant reduction to a point where it is it is more than just you're not allowed to water your lawn in July. Is it clear who gets what as far as sharing and distribution? Because you're seeing a lot of this out west with, you know, states like Nevada, California, Arizona, and lots of court fights about who gets rights to what water and how much and stuff like that. Do we have a good idea here? Because this is not something I think we think about from a day-to-day or even, you know, from a, a year-to-year situation. But is it clear who gets what or is that something that if the water levels go lower, we could start to see court fights and and things get nasty state-to-state, area-to-area? Yeah, so it's always easier to manage when supply is adequate to meet everyone's needs. It's interesting. We have different laws for water rights here than we do out west. Um, out west, it's a first come, first serve um, water rights. And so access to water resources based on who applied for permits first. Here, where we have more ample water supply in, in general, water rights are more based on your access to the, to the water body itself. So we have a different set of constraints than they do out west. But certainly you can imagine having to have another set of skills for addressing water management in the future. And it's going to have to rely more on negotiation and mediation and having in place mechanisms for negotiating the water as we need it. Is this something that 
states, you're starting to hear conversations now and municipalities are starting to look at this in a big picture and say, okay, so so exactly how much can we get? And exactly how much do we have to allow state X to take? Like, is this something that that's being discussed right now in this area? Yeah, the fact that we already have the Delaware River Basin Commission in place is is great for us. There's already a, a governing body for making those decisions and um, revisiting the allocations, what each municipality is allowed to withdraw from the, the river supply and permitting all the different withdrawals and discharges into our water bodies. So the fact that that already exists puts us at a, at a great advantage. But I think, you know, if you look at globally, if you look around the world, managing water across Boundaries is also something that I look at. So transboundary water management, sometimes when you're dealing with different countries, it gets more complicated, particularly when, when you're in water-scarce regions. And so you have the technical complication of how to allocate the water, and then you have the equally complicated process of mediating who gets what and when. We need to take a break on KYW News Radio In-Depth. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Mira Olson in just a moment. But right now, there's nothing quite like the Honda Accord Hybrid and the CRV Hybrid when it comes to exhilarating efficiency. With hybrid technology and thrilling capability, these vehicles deliver an electrifying performance on every drive. This new year, discover for yourself what truly makes these hybrids special. Redefine your driving experience with Honda. KBB.com. Com's best value brand of 2023. Contact your local Honda dealer today about the Honda Accord Hybrid and the CRV Hybrid. And now let's return to our conversation on KYW News Radio in depth with Dr. Mira Olson, Associate Professor of Civil Architectural and Environmental Engineering at Drexel University. We've looked at this from a water availability mm-hmm. kind of angle. Should people be concerned? Let's assume this goes in a direction that it looks like it could with regards to climate change and water levels being lower and all. Should the average person expect to pay more for their water? I think people should be aware of the value of water and the infrastructure that it takes to manage it and and treat it and clean it and deliver it to where we want to use it and then treat it again as we put it back into our natural environment. I think, yeah, understanding the value of that process and that we need to invest in um, securing it for the future is important for everyone to be aware of and to be educated on. So I think a greater awareness is is definitely called for from general uh, local residents. What would be some of the things that in a perfect world you would like to see put in place that could really help alleviate any shortage problems in the future? Yeah, so I think it's really important to the things that to think about the things that we're able to control and at, at what level. So precipitation patterns, we generally think of that as beyond our control, but I'd push back on that a little bit. I think what our global climate models respond to are emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and we're seeing these increases in temperatures and, and changes in our climate linked to our greenhouse gas emissions. So that is something that we can adjust, even though generally we think of you know precipitation as this natural input that we don't have much control over. I, I think there's some pushback to that. And then locally at the infrastructure level, yeah, a lot of it is how we use land, how we develop how we move about the city, what areas we protect and keep permeable so that so that we can better create natural systems. And then in terms of infrastructure investments, 
you're going to probably see a lot more green infrastructure, rain gardens, bump outs around streets. So we have these cities that are very densely and highly developed, and we're going to be greening those. The, the city of Philadelphia has been doing this for years, and it's still an ongoing process. And so we've seen a lot of change over the past decades, really trying to recreate more of the natural processes. Is there a way that we could do something to where areas that get a lot of water can help areas that are dry? Why can't we build pipelines to take excess water from areas that are flood prone and divert it to, you know, the southwest, stuff like that? We already do a lot of that. And I think we have to because we're we're living places where the demand for water far exceeds the natural input of, of rain locally across the U.S. and internationally. That's just true. So if you look out west, the Colorado is piped to California for agriculture, so across many states. Here we also have systems in place. So one of our mechanisms for keeping flow above certain levels in the Schuylkill River is to pipe it from the Delaware under certain circumstances. So, you know, it's it's always a tricky question if you want to focus on the infrastructure fixes, or if you want to focus on the things that will help us live within the available resources that we have locally. So that there are things that we can, we can always technology our way into more water from different places. But I think we also have to think about in, improving our water efficiency and living within the available resources that we have. What is the next generation of water, the way we deal with water, look like as far as because I've heard for you know the idea of taking the salt out of the ocean and usual utilizing that water to to some degree and I know there is desalination but it's real from what I understand it's really expensive and Mm -hmm. difficult to do on a large scale like could we get to a point where we that type of technology and we can utilize salt water in ways that would help alleviate a lot of of these problems and is that something that's already starting to work? Yeah, I think we're definitely going to see a lot more of a circular water economy. So where we're using and reusing water in creative ways. There's only so much that we can do to increase our fresh water supply. We have what we have. <laughs> water budget is a closed cycle on earth. So we don't have any water that's any different than we had eons ago. So if we want more fresh water supply, yes, things like desalination are going to be ways that we can increase that. The other ways that we can do are to recycle water that we've already used. And so many areas of the world are doing more of that directly, so direct water reuse. So if you think about our urban water cycle, what we do is we take water out of our rivers and we treat it and then we distribute it to our homes to drink it. And in that process, it becomes dirty again. So we send it back and we send it back to wastewater treatment facilities and they clean it again and they put it back into a receiving water. That could be within the Schuylkill River Basin. We sometimes have withdrawals that come to our homes and go right back into the Schuylkill. Sometimes they go back into the Delaware. That goes down to Delaware. We get our water after it's been through New York and New Jersey. So we already have a recycled approach to to water management. We always put it back into the natural environment before we directly reuse it. But in many parts of the world, they're doing more direct reuse of water. As someone who has studied this, who knows how the sausage is made as far as how the water, are you optimistic that we will get this right in the big picture? Are you confident that we we will be able to get this right? 
I do. I am confident that we have the ability to get this right. I think we have to take care and look at the risks of reusing water directly and recycling water, both to humans and to our ecosystems as we put it back. We know how to do that. So I think we have the tools at our disposal, but we have to implement change responsibly and we have to look at negative impacts and we have to play those out. We have to see, you know, if we do this, what are the effects downstream and what are the the long-term effects and how do they build up over time and how can we minimize risk? That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>